and happy new year, everyone. We're back after a brief layoff. I hope everyone listening had a good holiday season. If you're a returning listener or if you're listening for the first time, once again, my name is Kenneth Dean, the Dean of Metal, and my co-host is Chris Gay. We begin the new year with episode 45, The Life and Death of Glam Metal, Part 1, The Life. We're going to talk about the beginnings of glam metal, the early influencers, the scenes around the U.S. and the rest of the world. We'll talk about the rise in popularity and the world domination that the scene achieved. Kenneth and I will also talk about the bands, musicians, and other artists that helped define the genre. And since we left you with a bit of a cliffhanger at Christmas, our Big Four this week will be the Big Four Motley Crue songs. So stick around until the end of the episode to see which songs we chose. Also, be sure to check out the last episode... Also, be sure to check out the last episode to hear our Big Four Metal Christmas songs. And as always, I'll bring you another dose of Rusty Metal, and Chris will bring you something freshly forged. With Rusty Metal, I dive into the archives and pick a release that I think is worth giving another spin to, and Chris reveals his choice of something new to listen to that he thinks you'll really enjoy. If you mistakenly missed our last episode or any of the ones before that, click subscribe or follow on your favorite podcast platform, and you'll get our latest episode every Friday, and you'll never miss what we had to say. We also want to read your opinions on these or any of our other topics, so if you like what we had to say or just want to rip us a new one, send us an email to debatingmetal at gmail.com or message us at our Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter pages. Speaking of social media, be sure to look midweek or so every week as Kenneth Dean will post a video to all three of these platforms of his rusty metal pick giving you some exclusive additional details about the album. With that said, what is your rusty metal pick this week? All right, this week, Rusty Metal brings me to a band out of New York City that really wasn't supposed to be a band. It, the band's name is Sweet Pain, with their self-titled release, Sweet Pain. came out in 1985 on Combat Records. It's produced by Eric Williams, and the band consists of vocalist Corky Gunn and bassist Kelly Nichols. I don't know the other two guys. <laughs> Sorry, okay. but it, I, the drummer was—I don't remember his name—and the guitar player is really ir- irrelevant at this point. The, and the reason I say it that way is because the band wasn't supposed to be a band. I actually just read an interview with Corky Gunn about his career and what he's done, and he was associated with—he um, was associated with LA Guns uh, because of Kelly Nichols. Uh, he actually managed them for a year, and so he he was he worked for Relativity Records or Rel- yeah I think it was Rel- Relativity Records or something like that, he, important distributors, and so what ended up happening was Combat was a thrash label, and they wanted to expand their their portfolio I guess you want to put it that way, and so they wanted to sign a glam band and they had a band that they chose out of L.A that Corky wasn't big on. I can't remember what the name of the band was. So he's like, yeah, I don't like them. So the, uh, the guy from combat said, well, why don't you start a band and I'll, we'll sign you. And so that's essentially what ended up happening. He put together a band and they named it sweet pain and they released their first album <laughs> or first and only album. Essentially. Um, I heard about them when Corky Gunn was being interviewed on Heavy Metal from Hell, the radio show that I used to listen to in New York City. Uh, This was back in 1986. 
Um, they played a couple tracks off the album, and I was just like hooked. I was like, this is like sleaze metal all the way. This is like a almost a as sleazy as Faster Pussycat was, basically, okay. uh, or is because there's Faster Pussycat still around. Sort I went of. out and I, say what? Sort of. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's sort of still around <laughs> yeah. right now. Anyway, I bought the album the next day, and it was just one of those albums that you kind of never really forget about, even though you haven't played it or listened to it in years. And that was one of the things with them. I didn't have a, a, a record player for the longest time, and so that was the only way that I could hear the the record. You know, was I never transferred it to a tape. I never turned it into an mp3 or anything like that so when i finally got my turntable it's got a usb connection i immediately ripped it and i have the album now on mp3 so it was it's one of those albums where i just i think about it a lot and then turn it on every so often think it's a really cool album and it's it's straight up glam metal um bass player bass player kelly nichols went on to join faster pussycat um for a brief moment uh, got into a motorcycle accident, jacked up his leg big time. Basically, the band continued on without him. He ended up joining L.A. Guns right before they recorded their first album, uh, which was basically the start of his career because he was with them throughout all their commercial success. Um, and there's a song on the first album called Shoot for Thrills Into the Night, which Sweet Pain actually recorded on their debut record, and then Kelly brought it over to L.A. Guns, and they re-recorded it properly because they rushed the one that was on Sweet Pain album, and it didn't sound as good or didn't even come across as good. The one on L.A. Guns is pretty cool. Uh, hmm. It's anyway, a really interesting story. I mean, it, it, it is. A, it was. A, I was amazed when I found this interview yesterday. I mean, literally yesterday in the afternoon, I found this interview, and I'm like, this is really cool. And it, it gave me so much detail as to what happened with this band and what happened with the record. Because after I moved from New York, I never heard from them again. And I always wondered why. And this is why. Because Corky wasn't really a singer. He was just somebody who worked for a record company. And he didn't necessarily want to be a vocalist. So he ended up working for LA Guns for a short period of time. And went back to working, doing his thing. He had, he has a million stories. He was, became friends with Motley Crue, and he apparently he's trying to write a book and wants to turn it into a movie, something similar to like The Dirt, you know. Mm, okay. So anyway, uh, shortly after Kelly Nichols left to join L.A. Guns, the band disbanded. The drummer quit, the guitar player quit, and they just went their separate ways. So I think it's a really cool album. Check out a video that I'm going to post this week. I'm going to show you a picture of the album and kind of go into a little bit more detail on it um, on social media. So check that out when you can. Yeah, I'll have to. I, I've honestly never even heard of the band, or if I have, I don't remember. Um, but it's, I mean, it's an interesting story. It has my attention. Yeah, it's it's not available on like on Spotify or any of the music platforms. I, I don't know if Combat just doesn't want to release it or there's, there's some rights problems with it or not. But... And the I think maybe ten years ago or so the album was re-released or yeah released on CD for the first time for a very brief period of time and it's out of print now something mm. like that so I mean I have the record from 1986 and and it still sounds pretty good but it's total total glam sleaze stuff you know so it's pretty cool. All right, well I'll have to check that out. Um. Okay. So this week. I would normally do a uh, Freshly Forged or an online pick of the week, but uh, 
We got some pretty bad news uh, yesterday, and that was uh, the passing of guitarist Alexi Lyo uh, from Children of Bottom and more recently Bottom After Midnight. Um, it came as a complete shock. He's only 41 years old. They've, they haven't really quite revealed what happened, but they said it was a long-term health effect. Um, if you've been a fan of, of him and uh, the band, um, you could kind of see he was looking thinner. So I'm not sure if that's that's an issue that was related to that. But, uh, you know, it was, really, it was really hard to hear that. I've been a fan of, of Children of Bottom since 1997, since the first album came out. Uh, so I was about nine or ten years old. Um, so that's that's somebody that's that's been around for a long period of my life that I've been a fan of, and uh, th- you know we've we've lost a lot of musicians. We've lost Eddie Van Halen uh, recently, etc. And but it somehow when it's when it's a band that that's more near and dear to your heart. Um, I think it, it affects you a lot, a lot heavier. Um, so to all the fans out there that have, that have lost a musician that, that they've, you know, felt that strongly about it. This was, this was a hard one for me. If you haven't checked out the band they're they've been, they were a pretty accessible, uh, Scandinavian metal band that I think a lot of people were able to get into. Um, even when they're not huge you know, death metal vans or, or something like that, because they have kind of a unique style and, and very, um, defined music that, that I think it's really easy to listen to. Uh, I understand they have a pretty big fan base really all over the world, but in the U S I think more so than, than a lot of death metal bands. Um, and that's, that's really, I think partially because of his talent, his skill, and uh, his his recognizable vocals, and I mean this is a huge loss. I, 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 there's been an outpouring of support. Uh, if you go on blabbermouth.com, um, you'll see a lot of musicians have have posted, you know, their their interactions with Alexi. That's pretty crazy to say for uh, someone that that's you know from from Finland that it shows how much the world has grown and changed. That you know something that big has even made it onto CNN. So definitely a, a huge loss and uh, it will be felt in, in the, the metal world. And our, our thoughts and prayers are definitely with his family. You turned me on to children of bottom and uh, I, I like most of what I've, I've listened to and, and to, to, to know that, that he passed. It, it, it is definitely, you know, sad news. Um, it's just way too many of these guys are dying so young you know, it's just kind of weird, man. You know, you know, you and I are both big wrestling fans. You know, Brody Lee. You know, John Huber passed away last week. Uh, I mean, that's and, and then you know now a big influence. You know, on on something that you you are that's near and dear to your heart with you know um, melodic death metal and and you know Alexi dying. That's that's tough, man. Uh, so I, I I know how it is. I I, I feel bad. I mean, from what I heard, I mean, he was a great guitar player from what I can hear when I'm listening to his songs. I mean, I haven't dived super deep into him. We did an episode on children, I think, or or we, we, we kind of glanced over them and it's, it's, it's tough when you, when, when someone is close to you like that, because I've always said that if like, for instance, James Hetfield were to pass away unexpectedly, I'm not working that day. I'm going home. (laughs) 
You know, it's just, yeah. <laughs> I'm, just I'm sorry. I mean, that that's about as close to I could, uh, what I can call a hero in my life you know, as, as a musician than, than anybody. I mean, I, I looked up to Kiss and I always wanted to be Gene Simmons, but I, I never thought of him as a hero. But James Hetfield, you know, he just, there's just a lot of influence um, that he has had on me. Uh, so something like that would just devastate me. So I, I totally sympathize and, and my, my thoughts and prayers go out to the, uh, the uh, family of Alexi. Absolutely. Um, so I, I, all I can say is at least they recorded some, uh, and I say they, uh, Bottom After Midnight recorded some, some uh, music before he passed away, and I believe a video. So we'll, we'll be looking for that stuff to come out and, and uh, you know, the, kind of the last tribute to Alexi and his legacy. So, so yeah, uh, definitely be on the lookout for that. And uh, if, if you have any thoughts, any uh, stories about Alexi, um, I'm sure they're being posted all over. But uh, make sure to check out our, our social media and uh, let us know if you have any thoughts about that. Because, uh, like I said, I, I was a huge fan and I'd like to hear some other music or, or some other fans' thoughts about uh you know, him and his legacy. Yes, we would definitely love to hear it. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, they had a streaming concert just a couple months ago, right? And so you can probably check that out. You can check that out. There was a full concert. I believe it was 17 songs. I I thought it was excellent. I actually picked it as my online pick of the week a while back because uh, I I was so happy with it. I enjoyed the whole thing. So you can find that on YouTube. I'm sure there's other venues that you can look, you can find it through. Um, but, but definitely check that out. If you haven't seen it, it's, it's really worth a watch. Yep. I, I agree. So cool. Um, that brings us to our main topic of the night and that is the life and death of glam metal part one, the life of, basically um we're going to talk about glam metal and its beginnings uh, for this episode it's going to be for the from the beginnings to the height of their popularity next episode we're going to go into um the 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 those that those popular years and then basically the results of going into the new decade in the 90s and, and what grunge metal uh or grunge rock did to the uh, glam metal scene so, this episode, we're talking about the life and how it all started. And uh, what do you what do you have to say about it? Tell me a little bit about what you think the beginnings of glam metal come from. Um. So, I mean, as far as the so as far as what I think of when when I think of the origins of glam, um, I mean, for me, when I I guess the band that I would think of as synonymous with glam to to me would be uh motley crew you know they i think they exemplify all the excesses all the the image the you know the the attitude the bravado of that that genre of music and they themselves were influenced by bands like hanoi rocks and before that uh the new york dolls uh, Van Halen even. So, I mean, there, there's a, there's a lot of influences that, that brought them there. You know, bands that started in the sixties and seventies with a lot of theatrics like, uh, Alice Cooper and David Bowie, uh, even T-Rex. I mean, these guys that, that, uh, you know, were presenting something larger than life, almost like a, like a superhero type personality and something that, that, you know, 
could really draw the crowd in and focus on something, you know, more than just a guy up on stage. And there, the, the, all that attitude was filtered into, you know, somehow wearing dresses and makeup and, (laughs) (laughs) and big Um, hair. The big hair. Yes. That, that to me is, is the, is the big defining thing about glam metal, um, more than anything else. And that's, that's probably the big reason why it's called hair metal uh, nowadays. Um, I actually don't, you know, I thought about it today and I really don't have a problem with the term hair metal because even the thrash bands, obviously they had a lot of hair, you know, the extreme, the, the more extreme metal bands and death metal bands and that, that emerged, everybody, all of them had hair, but mm-hmm. the, the glam bands like the poisons and the Motley Crues and the warrants and all them, they had more than just hair. They teased their hair. They, you know, they, they, they made spent it a lot of time possible. on hair. <laughs> yeah, they did. Um, but you, you touched upon a couple of bands and artists that, that definitely had a major influence on the scene. And uh, with when you talk about the New York Dolls and you talked about Alice Cooper and stuff like that. And Alice Cooper, I never got into Alice Cooper. I mean, I like some of his hit singles. But as a, as a going to, to, to wanting to go to a show to see the theatrics, I don't know. I, I never really got that deep into Alice Cooper to want to see that. Um, so you know, that wasn't a big part of my life, but the one that was a big part of my life was kiss. And, and they were, uh, almost the epitome of the New York glam scene because they were, they didn't just wear makeup, you know, to highlight their eyes. They, they wore kabuki makeup to, to, to disguise themselves. And then they had the gigantic hair. I mean, Paul Stanley's Afro was huge in the seventies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, Gene Simmons with the, with the little, you know, uh, poof on top of his head and you know they they epitomize what it would what glam rock if you want to put it was in the 70s him i mean excuse me them david bowie with with uh, ziggy stardust and all that stuff he was he was outlandish with the stuff that he did you know t-rex was a huge influence later on on def leppard the new york dolls on everybody that that, that eventually emerged in the 80s hanoi rocks like you said before and and you, you, you touched briefly, Van Halen did have a huge influence because they were kind of like the bridge between glam rock and the glam metal scene that started in LA. They were not necessarily glammy, but they, they incorporated the sound to some degree. Obviously, Eddie created his own sound. And then so many people picked up on the fact that these guys had huge hair. <laughs> well, yeah, they, I mean, they had that 80s style. They had the spandex going on, especially David Lee Roth. David had, you know, kind of like a, I don't, not a effeminate look, but like he was really out there. I mean, the crotch was out there and, you know, like that well, was had, adopted by a lot of bands. I mean, he had rap, the assless chaps. <laughs> assless chaps, yeah. Um, so there was, there was something that, that, these glam bands really took from their style and antics on stage. Um, the theatrics, like you mentioned with kiss, uh, and, and definitely with Alice Cooper, the makeup, you know, all came from that kind of thing. Uh, T-Rex, you know, huge. If you, if you go back and look at their, their look around, you know, the, the mid seventies, I think, I feel like that's, that's where a lot of the look came from was from T-Rex and definitely Hanoi Rocks. 
Um, Hanoi Rocks is usually credited with being the the blueprint of what you know the the image of of uh, glam would be. And if you if you go back and look, they're wearing uh, feather boas and and uh, scarves and you know big tall boots with heels. You know stuff that Marty Friedman is still wearing today. Um, <laughs> um, you know, but they had more of a punk and rock sound, so they weren't. I, they, I don't think they fit into the mold of being called glam metal, maybe glam rock at 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 most. But they still had a punk sound to them. Um, but they definitely, if you look at the band and and listen to some of those those songs, their most popular songs, you can hear. It's it's almost like talking about uh, Black Sabbath and metal. You know, Black Sa- early Black Sabbath is not metal, but you can see that's where metal came from. So I think it's in the same respect. Hanoi Rocks is is that band that kind of uh, was the blueprint. Yes, and uh, and even you know, again touching back because they were they were relatively late seventies. Talking about like Black Sabbath and and even Deep Purple and, and Led Zeppelin, how they influenced heavy metal, and even though those bands each kind of went in a different direction um, musically and literally, they just branched out in three different directions. Um, with Black Sabbath getting harder and harder, um, Deep Purple just kind of continuing on with that that blues jazz funkiness that they had, and Led Zeppelin just was was clear across the board. They they hit every genre. Um, Kiss, as I, as, as I mentioned before, were big influence from, on those people. Um, Aerosmith was also a really big influence on what would eventually become the glam scene. And Twisted Sister were just walking around dressed as chicks all the time, <laughs> you yeah. know. And and they didn't really. I mean, they started in, in the mid seventies, and they they were a huge New York club band uh, for that tri-state area in the New York area, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, even probably some Pennsylvania. And they, they were big. They, but they could not get a record deal. And, and I kind of, kind of can understand why uh, musically, but they were big. I mean, they were selling out everywhere they went, you know, clubs, but they were selling out. So they had a tremendous amount of influence on, at least on the New York or the East Coast side of the scene, where LA side of the scene, which is where, where really where it, it exploded from, Hanoi Rocks was big for them, Van Halen was big, Quiet Riot in the late 70s, um, they had their Japanese record deal and they, they had a big influence on that scene as well. And then when the, when the turn of the decade came, things just went I don't want to say haywire things just exploded from there oh yeah for sure I mean uh, you're talking about the LA scene I mean Motley Crue uh, Dawkin I mean two of the two of the biggest and the pioneers I would say the pioneers of of glam metal uh, came straight from LA then you have um, you have Night Ranger from San Francisco You've got Rat from San Diego. You've got Quiet Riot, again, from, from Los Angeles. And you addressed that they were originally from there. But Quiet Riot came back into the scene uh, after their initial run 
uh, a little bit after these guys. So that, that's kind of an interesting story we'll touch on in a bit. Um, but there's also Striper from, from Orange County. Uh, and I mean, so, so a lot of these guys uh, of the, the 10 that I have listed as, as like the pioneers of glam metal, um, most of them come from LA or the surrounding areas. Yeah. LA was huge, you know, and, and then when Eddie Van Halen and and the band took off and he had an amazing amount of influence on the guitar players for all of these bands, because all of these bands, you know, it was, there was three things that they really needed to do. They needed to have as big amount, uh, as big a hairstyle as possible. <laughs> they needed they needed to have as good looking of a singer as possible, right? And then they needed to have as much of a shredding guitar player as possible. That was like the three big things that you needed to, to make it in the LA scene at that time. I mean, quite honestly, those big early bands, that's the reason why a lot of them you know, did so well. On top of that, they had talent, you know? Oh, yeah. I mean, with Dawkins, Don Dawkins, you know, for, for, for what it's worth, even though his vocals are light, he could sing. And no, he, has he, had, a, he has a great singing voice and, and uh, then George, George Lynch. Oh, my exactly. gosh. George yeah. Lynch was a beast of a guitar player. And, and the funny thing is, George is more of a contemporary of Eddie's than he is of the LA scene. But he, he ended up, not really getting the recognition until he became part of the LA scene per se, you know, the, the hair metal scene or glam metal scene. And then you, you, you mentioned Motley Crue. So they, Motley Crue had Vince Neil and then they had this killer guitar Mars, player yeah. and Mick Mars, you know, and, and they had talent because they had Tommy Lee and Nikki six was a great songwriter. So they had it all together and they I mean, were one of even rat had Warren D uh, Warren D Martini. I mean, exactly who, who they fit into the same roles that you're, you're, you're mentioning. I mean, I didn't even think of it that way, but you're absolutely right. I mean, those those were the 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 template markers that you had to fill to create <laughs> one of these bands. Exactly, and and you know, you could tell you know when as the band as they kept picking out more and more of these bands. You know, the, 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 the musicians started getting uglier and uglier, you know, they weren't getting the signs, <laughs> but that, that's a joke. But, uh, realistically, I mean, these, th- this scene was insane and, you know, you are what, approximately 16 years younger than me. Did we, did we calculate uh, yeah, that? I believe, uh, about, something, like, yeah. something like that. Right. So that was my scene. You know, I was, you know, when 1980 came around, I was 11 years old. And, you know, shortly after MTV started, everything exploded for me. Um, I was buying magazines. I mean, I literally saved every dollar and penny that I could to go out and get a magazine, Hit Parader, Circus, sometimes Cream. I, I wasn't a really big fan of Cream, but if they had a Kiss article, I would buy it. Hit Parader and and Circus were the two big ones. And then shortly after that, when the LA scene blew up, Metal Edge magazine was gigantic for that. Mm. So, you know, I'm I'm buying, you know, these magazines left and right. I mean, they would probably come out a week apart from each other so that they wouldn't, you know, overlap with each other. Um, But when you you go out and you buy them all at the same time, then you, you read them all. And then you're, you're dying for the next four weeks because you want more. And, you know, the, the internet didn't exist back then. So you couldn't just go on the internet and read your, your favorite magazine. 
you had to literally wait for the publication to come out and go to the magazine store, which is it's, usually a cigar shop. <laughs> yeah, it's funny how different a world we live in than back then. I mean, because it used to be the same for really anything as far as that excitement. It could build up because it, it, you couldn't just instantly go online and find information. It, you had to you had to find it in whatever sources. And there was a lot of word of mouth and there was there was there was a era or i mean an air of mystery to a lot of this stuff and i think it's a, it's such a different experience now oh today i mean the, the whole instant gratification thing for today it, it's kind of i mean you know i think charlie benante touched upon it where he said you know i he doesn't understand today's um instant gratification to the, the people who don't want to have a CD in their hands or a record in their hands, but that's fine. You know, the it, today's world doesn't know what happened in the eighties and the nineties. Mm-hmm. So they're not missing out on anything. This no, is it's what, just a different experience. Right. It's Explaining experience. it to somebody now it's, it's, it's gotta be a the whole different mindset. I mean, if, if, yeah, because I mean, these people don't know what rotary dial phones are, you know, <laughs> they, they look at these, you know, these, these rotary dials and they're like, what's this do? You know, you didn't realize that if you hit the nine and you moved it all the way to the other side, when it came back, it was clicking nine times or, or, you know, pulsing nine times in your ear. It's just, it's just one of those things that people just can't understand, you know? So, having to wait a month. I mean, imagine if you were a tape trader, I never got into tape trading, but if, if you record a record and you put it on a tape and then you mail it to someone halfway across the world, you don't know if they got it until they respond back to you. And if they never respond back to you, well shit, then you don't know if they ever got it or not, (laughs) You, you know, but, and that's just one of those things. It's like, you know, pen pals. people don't know what the hell pen pals are nowadays. You know, the only people who know about that is, is people in prison. You know, and 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 their penmates. You know, but even that's different. So it's it's so unique that whole experience that I went through. That- you know, it's funny. It's funny thinking about this, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but uh-huh. um, pen pals. I mean, I I talk to metal fans from all over the world now, just at ease, and we we can relate on that level and have that conversation. I, I mean, one of the one of the guys that actually wrote in to our big four. Um, I believe, where is he living now? He's in Malta. I mean, how, how crazy is that to think oh. that all over the world we have these these people that we can relate to and connect with on this level of what we have in, in common as fans? It, it's insane to think about you, that, that you can literally communicate with someone on the other side, halfway around the world. Mm-hmm. You know, it, literally the other side of the world, and you can communicate in instant time, in in real time, and that's that's crazy to think about. You know, where before you had to write a letter, you had to put you know extra postage on it just in case you know it wasn't enough, and you you would wait and wait and wait until someone wrote back to you. You know, and even then, like when when the internet first started in AOL, you still had to wait to see because not everybody was sitting on their on on their computers trying to log into AOL. You know, so you would have to wait for them to log in when they were, you know, down on their downtime, and then they would read whatever email came in. You know, you were everybody would wait to see you've got mail. You know, and it was so exciting. Even that is even kids so, don't know what that is now. <laughs> exactly, you know. So it's so weird, um, but it's it's great. 
but it's, yeah, it's wonderful that we can do that. We can we can find people from all over the world and have something in common. I mean, think about like we, metal. We had, um, I mean, that one morning that we we got to work. I had that brief conversation via Instagram messaging with um, the guy from uh, Morris from Simply MS. You know what's Andy Gillian? Yeah, with Andy Gillian. I mean. I was messaging with him briefly, you know, at eight o'clock in the morning, my time, which is probably in the afternoon, his time, wherever he was at. And that's just insane to think that this guy was, you know, typing at the same time I was typing. We were talking to each other, Mm -hmm. essentially, you know, so it's, it's so cool. So going back to our main topic, back in those days, this is what we did. We, we, we went to a, a, a record store and we flipped through records. We went to a, a magazine store or a bookstore that had magazines that published information on the bands that you liked. And that was the only way you would find out about new bands unless you were a tape trader. You know, you would see ads. Hey, this band's coming out with this album. You know, so check out the new album from this new group. You know, it was advertising. That's all it was. You know, and then you know, you had your friends who would pick it up and, you know, uh, pick up an album that you had no idea about and they would come to you and say, dude, you got to hear this, you know, and, and that's just the way things were. Now it's different. But back then it was, it was just, it was, un- it's a unique thing for people now. Back then it was just kind of like, that's the way you did it. So it was, it was insane to think about being in the middle of that happening you know, that I grew up in that time period and to just literally see it all evolve. You don't know as a, as a person who's in it, you don't realize that this is evolving. You just think this is the way of the world, <laughs> you know? Yeah. You don't know history's ma- being made when it's being made most of the time. Exactly. So it was, it was quite a cool experience. I mean, MTV, you could tell was history in the making, but just watching it and picking up all these bands, then it became every day. It just became a normal part of life. So you're listening, mm-hmm. you're watching and listening to MTV and you're waiting for your next band to, to put out their next video. And that was cool, you know, so. So, so why don't we talk a little bit about each of these, these uh, bands that, the, what I would say is the, the 10 that really pioneered. Okay. Let's go um, for it. So the way that I have them organized is actually by the release date of their first album. So some of these bands were around before others, uh, but they didn't release an album. So it, you know, it's, it's, you can say like, okay, Twisted Sister formed in, in uh, 1972, but they didn't release an album for 10 years. So in 1972, were they really playing the same music in the same way with the same look that they did in 1982? Um, I, that I don't know. Um, but you, can, you can't say they're, they're the first release unless they actually release their album first. Right. Um, they may have been the one that that they there may have been you know crossover where some of the bands influenced each other. Maybe they met cross paths and thought, oh, that's cool what they're doing. Um, but first is first. So uh, the first of these releases was Motley Crue with Too Fast for Love, which we talked about actually on our last episode. Too Fast for Love. I think we uh, actually we we talked about Shout at the Devil. We did mention Too Fast for Love, um, but that was the first of what would really be considered 
uh, a glam metal album, even though it's still more rock. And I think it really took till Shout at the Devil to be defined in that 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 uh, genre. But the elements were there. The look was there. The 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 attitude was there. It was just in its infancy. Molly Crew is 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 a unique band, and and all these bands obviously are unique in their own way. Molly Crew was unique because I think every album that they put out was absolutely different from the the one before it, and different from the one before that. They, I mean, to me, Vince Neil, I kept thinking it was a different singer every time they, they, they released an album because he didn't sound the same. Mm. And the first, you know, my my initial exposure to, to Motley Crue was Shout at the Devil, knowing at this point Shout at the Devil is their second album, so they didn't really have a, a deep catalog. So I went out and I was able to get Too Fast for Love. And at the time, Too Fast for Love, the, the one I got was the Electra Records version, which is the the remastered and slightly remixed version that then then what came out before it when Molly Crew independently released it on their leather records version is what they call it. it it's a, it's a, it's such a different sound from one album to the next. I mean, you can see how angry they get. But Too Fast for Love was was a really cool album, and I like a lot of the songs on that album. And sound wise, it's different than than what. I guess you could say is you know pop metal, glam metal, hair metal, whatever you want to call it, is in the '80s. It's it's real different. I mean, obviously, it's very raw. It's very raw, and you that's know. that's the biggest difference between where they're going with it. And I think that's why Dawkins' first album it feels more like glam metal. I mean, Breaking the Chains, same year. Um, the, it has more of the defined glam metal sound. Even yeah. though Motley Crue's first and it's still considered uh, the the first one, it's just something about the 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 image, the sound, everything that's on that that first album, Dawkins hit hit the the mark with the glam metals. <laughs> yes, they did. I mean, and the funny thing is that they weren't supposed to be a band. The Don was signed to a record contract, but there was no band. And he had these songs. So he ended up getting together, I think it was with Mick Brown. Uh, and then Mick's like, yeah, I, I, I have this guitar player. I know I know this guy named George. And they got Jeff Pilson to play bass. And, and so they, they, they unwittingly put themselves together, essentially. They didn't realize that they wanted to be a band. They didn't really they didn't know each other from, you know, a hole in the head essentially and became a band. And I think that, that has a lot to do with the dynamics that would come later on between George and Don, you know, George is this guitar, is this guitar prodigy and Don is a guitar player himself, but George basically wouldn't let him play. <laughs> you know. Well, I understood that. So he, Don had two guys that were playing with him and they both left and they actually replaced him with George Lynch and Juan Crossier. That's right. And, That's right. I forgot Juan Crossier was there. Was his bass player on the first album? Um, was he on the? Was he actually on the first album? Yeah, or he was. was oh, okay, but he wasn't around by the time that the album was actually released. He had no. already left, and Jeff Filson yeah. filled, or you know, filled that spot. Correct. 
so at that point, yeah, I, I mean that you've got a crossover there with Juan Crossier over from um, Rat. Rat. Yeah, because all these guys knew each other to some degree. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, Don was different because Don was a, is a little older. He's sort of like like George. He's a little older than the rest of the crowd, and he was. Uh, he was more because he he got his deal and I think he did mo- a lot of shows in Europe. I mean that's kind of where he made his name in Germany. Um, so the, a lot of people thought initially that he was a German band, a Dokken, you know, v- yeah, rocking with Dokken, you know. In, in <laughs> so, but um, you know, George and Jeff and 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 Wild Mick Brown, they all they all were veterans of the LA scene, you know, so they were friends with the guys in Rat. The guys in Rat were friends with the guys in Crew and the guys in Crew with the friends with the guys in Quiet Riot and blah, 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 blah. You know, they all knew each other. But Dokken was is, is a unique, very unique band because they want to be super heavy, but then you got this guy who sings really light on vocals. <laughs> yeah. I mean, absolutely. That was always the thing that turned me off about Dokken because George Link... George Link. George Lynch is an amazing guitar player. And he's he's one of these guys that, like, when I've heard him uh, in any other capacity, I'm really drawn in. And then I listened to, I remember, I think Dream Warriors was maybe the first song that I heard from Dawkin that I really remembered. And that was because it was in the movie, uh, the Nightmare on Elm Street, or from it. I don't know if it was actually in the movie. Uh, but it was, you know, from the soundtrack. And, and, uh, Man, it, it it's an awesome song, but it's just the vocals to me. Like I I respect his vocal talent. It's just it doesn't appeal to me. Oh, I I totally get it. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, as, as the thing is, you know, like like my wife doesn't like ACDC, you know, mm-hmm. and she doesn't like ACDC because of Brian's vocals. She said instrumentally, she thinks it's cool, and even then, she 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 kind of has a. a she can deal with Bond's vocals, mm-hmm. you know. So when it comes to to Dokken, for me, you know, I deal with Don's vocals because as, as as cool as it is, you know, and you get this overall sound. I mean, I love Tooth and Nail. That album is great, but you can tell there's just parts of it. You're kind of like, man, I wish this had a little bit more balls on the on the vocals. Yeah, like you know? Into the Fire is a great song. It just if it had a little more punch on the vocals, that would be, you know, ideal right. for me. Exactly. Um, I mean, that being said, he he has a, a a fantastic vibrato. He's a great uh singer in his own capacity. It just to me, there was always a little bit of a disconnect there. Mhm. Totally understand. All right, so the next one on the list was Kicks, which is a band I'm not really super familiar with. Um, I've heard some of the music. I listened to a little bit of it uh, leading into this uh, discussion, but um, maybe you know a bit more than I do. I, I don't. You know, I, I wasn't really into Kicks. Um, they, even though they had a record deal, they weren't. They didn't get onto the scene, or they weren't. Uh, a player on the scene until they hit their third album with Midnight Dynamite. Mm. Uh, that song basically kind of gave them their career. Cause if I, I think if they don't hit big with their third album, they're really not going anywhere. Uh, I think they were on Atlantic records and they were eventually going to get dropped, but, but Midnight Dynamite did well for them. Um, I mean, they, they, 
they improved because that first kiss album, uh, kiss the first kicks album was rough, and then Cool Kids came out and they had a couple, you know, they had a little bit of a, of a uh, couple cool songs and it was building and it, it all built up into Midnight Dynamite, and uh, that's a cool cool album, you know. But after that, I kind of didn't really get into them much more than that, so I never dove into their history. I never realized that they were from Maryland. You know, yeah, I, I think that's kind of one of the interesting things about them is that the first two we mentioned, Motley Crue and Doc, and they're both from L.A. And then you have Kicks all the way from Hagerstown, Maryland. So some, somehow getting the same influences, getting the big hair, you know, inf- all that kind of filtering into the music. And so it's it's definitely more of a societal thing. It's not just, you know, somebody saw big hair and thought, well, that's awesome and let's, let's just throw that into music it'll be unique it wasn't necessarily unique because it was a look that was spreading across the the world so something was influencing them in the same way that motley Crue and dawkin felt and that's that's pretty interesting to me yeah i mean as i, I think you and i talked about a little bit earlier today there was also you know they were they were they were not the new york scene because the new york scene or the tri-state area scene is so different from the East Coast scene, if you will. There, Kicks was part of the East Coast scene, um, mm-hmm. where like bands like Cinderella and Poison came from that scene. They they were from Pennsylvania, so they're they're relatively in that same vicinity. And Poison left Pennsylvania to say, "Hey, if we can't get a record deal out here, we're going to go out west." And they they got their deal out there. Cinderella stuck around. And they they were basically fighting it out with bands like Britney Fox. They got their deal. They hit it big, and, and Britney kind of hung around for a few more years until they got their deal. So Kicks Kicks is to me is in that same general vicinity, and they were the first one to get signed out of that. And and they were the I guess the next best pro you know, or professional musicians, if you will. Um, and you know they were obviously you know they started in 1977 so they were around for a while but you know ultimately they didn't hit it big until the mid 80s oh yeah and, i mean and, and by it, big it's hard to hit it big without an album right so and, and by hitting it big they they didn't hit it like you know did not like motley Crue or cinderella big but they i i don't know if if um in the late 80s they had a big hit with uh don't close your eyes Right. Uh, so you probably know that one. It actually made it up to 11 on the Billboard Hot 100. So, I mean, at that point, though, in 88, 89, which we'll discuss later, um, I mean, that was when glam metal was really um, hitting its peak and, the, you know, the MTV era was going on. So there's a lot of factors in there. So, I mean, when when you're clamoring for anything metal um, in that that time period, that's always going to be a big push and push even things that are, are not necessarily, and I'm, and I'm not trying to sound like I'm criticizing this band specifically, but, but, um, you know, when, when that's, what's popular, it's going to push even things that aren't like the best ever up higher because it fits into the, the genre. I mean, the, the same experiences, I mean, we've talked about wrestling several times cause we're big fans. The same could be said for, um, in the, in the late nineties, 
the explosion that happened when people were just clamoring for anything in 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 wrestling and it elevated things even further beyond that so in the late 80s by that point you're going to see a huge you know explosion um just before the the fall exactly just before the fall <laughs> all right so going from kicks we go we get into twisted sister and twisted sister even though he started in 72 that was uh, J.J. French and a few friends of his, they had a band. But it wasn't until, I believe, 77 that that D. Snyder joined the band or somewhere around there. And that's really when the band, for what you want to call it, took off. That's when they became professional musicians. And you had D. and his girlfriend, who would eventually become his wife, Suzette, doing the costumes for the band and direct, you know, giving them their visual direction. Uh, and they were wearing these crazy colored outfits. You know, each guy in the band had a different color, very similar to Kiss, where, you know, Kiss, you know, Gene was red, Paul was purple, Ace was blue, Peter was green, you know. Also D- very similar to the Power Rangers. <laughs> 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 you know, um, I would say Twisted Sisters closer to the Power Rangers. You know, they had the, they had the red, the yellow, they had green, they had uh-huh. purple, yeah. they had pink. Um, they were all over the place. Um, they had the hot pink, no less. So, but here's the thing: I've been a fan of Twisted Sister for a long time, and you know, growing up in Yonkers, where Twisted Sister, I would say, JJ, I believe it was from from Hohokus, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. D, I think D's from Long Island. You know, so he, that's how, you know, they, they became basically a, a New York band. Um, they, I, there's something unique about their sound and their style and, the, and their, the, the style of songwriting that D does. But there's also something about it that completely lacks from what I would say is professional level songwriting. It, it's hard to kind of describe you kind of really have to listen to Twisted Sister to understand. Very similar to how we were talking about Manowar. There's a, you know, as big as they may or may not be, there's a certain level that they could have achieved if they had a different level of songwriting. You know, and there, de- yeah, there's something different about them as far as what they were trying to accomplish musically. You're and, talking about Twisted Sister? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so they're more focused on. And and I think I think this carries over um, for what you see with their music videos on it j- like a shock value almost not not so much as like Wasp um, but like something that that's you know projecting the image that they're trying to project. I mean, you can't tell me that Gene. I'm sorry that uh, that D, uh, D. Snyder dressing up as a woman, a really ugly woman was not trying to shock people and make them turn their heads. I mean, so there's something about that approach that they were trying to make. And the songs are very simplistic. They're they're very catchy. They're very easy to remember. We're not going to take it. I mean, who doesn't know that song? Right. Even if you're not, even if you don't know it's Twisted Sister, you know that song. You've heard it somewhere. So I think they're, they're an odd band to to define under the glam 
banner, but they are because of their influence in the glam scene. Um, but I think they, I would even just call them more of a rock band. Um, but they, but they had, they still dressed in the, the feminine clothing and still had music that fit within the, the, the scope of, of glam. So it's, it's hard not to include them in this list. Oh, well they, I mean, they admit themselves that they're a glam band, you know, mm-hmm. not necessarily glam metal, but just glam. They came out of the glam scene that was yeah. in New York, you know, and if, if for, as much as David Bowie was English, he was part of the New York glam scene, you mm-hmm. know, um, but their their evolution is, is just so weird because Twisted Sister, their alter ego was that these they were bikers, you know. And so you look at the back cover, uh, you know, the front cover has them in their colors and their makeup and so then you flip the back cover over and they're standing in the street with a with a street light behind them in the middle of England and they're just you know pretending to be like these tough guys. They got jeans on, they got jean jackets, you know. AJ Pirro's there, you know punching his hand, you know, and, and, you know, D's got this mean look and they, they just, they look like they're a bunch of rough guys and they did the same thing on, you can't stop rock and roll. And when you see the video for, you can't stop rock and roll, they're these guys that are tough. They, they're, they're denim and leather kind of guys. Mm -hmm. But when you see them on stage, they're the complete opposite. They're glammed up, you know, big hair and makeup. I think the difference, though, and and I don't mean this in any kind of mean way or anything, is that they were dudes. You know, they were they were manly looking dudes when they weren't in their makeup, and they, they were manly looking they, dudes when they were in makeup. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's that's where I was going with it. Was that they were not like Vince Neil got mistaken for a woman, you know. And I believe that's where the di- the dude looks like a lady uh, yes. lyrics uh, came from. Yeah. Well, there was no mistake in D. Snyder for a lady. Like, <laughs> the, no. They they were not mistaken for women at all. They were some really <laughs> ugly women. <laughs> so it was a more tongue in cheek thing, you know. Yeah. Where, like the music, the makeup was more ridiculous, and it wasn't meant to look sexy. It was meant to look silly in a way. No, and, and when they got signed and they released their first album, Under the Blade, I mean, that was, that was you know, for ma- it was masculine. That was a very masculine album. Mm-hmm. Um, it sounded that way. It was, it was rough. It was raw. It was in your face. And it had a ton of New York attitude. And absolutely nothing wrong with that. It's a great album. It's a great debut album. Too bad that the record company folded literally the next day. You know, secret records just disappeared overnight and they got left hanging. And they eventually got picked up by Atlantic and that's how they released You Can't Stop Rock and Roll. But Under the Blade was a killer album. And it it is not anything like the glam metal that that was prevalent in in the middle 80s. You know, they themselves became more of that with with uh, Stay Hungry and, and that album. But even that album has some really rough, raw, masculine songs to it. You know, as much as we're not going to take it and I Want to Rock were huge hits, there's some songs in there that are rough. Burn in Hell, you know, The Beast, SMF. Those were good yeah. songs, you know, but Under the Blade established them. It was real good. It was a good thing that they had Lemmy as a friend of theirs in England to help them, spread, you know, help them spread the word and get them 
you know, looked at by other people. So it helped a lot. That was, yeah. that you know, they were building an audience out in England around the same time as, as some other English bands were. <laughs> so, but we'll talk about those in a little bit. Well, to take us back to the L.A. scene, uh, we've got Night Ranger from San Francisco with their first release, Dawn Patrol. Um, this is, to me, I mean, this is a glam metal album. You know, uh, that's 1982, so we're talking the next, the following year, same as, as Twisted Sister. Um, but we've got uh, Don't Tell Me You Love Me, which is, I mean, it's a, it's a glam song. I love that uh, song. <laughs> that's an awesome song. So they were around for a bit longer. They started in 1979, but they changed their name a couple times and kind of changed the direction that they were going. They started as Stereo, then Ranger, and then eventually Night Ranger. Um, so how do you feel about this one? You probably know a little bit more about Night Ranger than I do. I, I just really know their hits, like Sister Christian and some of the power ballads. I, I know Don't Tell Me You Love Me. I know... You can still rock in America. I mean, I didn't. They they weren't one of these bands where they built up this this following across the country and and, and blew up. They they started um, kind of quietly for the most part in San Francisco. And um, it, I you know I think I had heard of Brad Gillis prior to him joining Ozzy, mm-hmm. but I I don't recall. I I, I do know that I remember seeing him on the Ozzy thing. And and then shortly thereafter, he was in Night Ranger. And I don't remember if I knew of him beforehand or if I discovered him when he was in Ozzy. But I did love his guitar playing. I love some of the the techniques that he did and the sounds that he came up with, which he then, you know, put on the first Night Ranger album. And, And that those techniques are very prevalent on the solo to Don't Tell Me Love Me. Don't Tell Me Love Me is a great song. You know, and it it firmly established Night Ranger as a as a heavy metal glam metal act, uh, and then you know then they released their next album that had you know you can still rock in America, Sister Christian, and it, it they blew up with that album. Oh yeah. So, so yeah, Night Ranger was cool. I mean, I think it was I forgot what the name of the the other guitar player. He was also a really good guitar player as well. I think it was Jeff something. I can't remember exactly, you know, but they had, I mean, what, Kelly Keegy was, was on their band too, right? And Shaw Blades, Jack, J- J- Jack Blades. I mean, Jack he's, Blades, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, that was a, the they base, were, yeah. yeah, there were some really good musicians in that band, you know, so they, they, they established themselves pretty well. And the unfortunate part was, I think they had a record company that wasn't really into them. And when you have that, that you don't really get the exposure that you deserve. Oh yeah, I mean that's been a case with so many musicians is they weren't given the shot that they really deserved. And like, say Judas Priest, who we've talked about countless times, uh, their first two albums and dealing with their record company at that point, um, they almost didn't go anywhere because they weren't getting the support that they needed or money that they needed from their record company. So it always makes things a lot harder, especially when you're having to live on, on not necessarily enough money. I don't know if that's the case for Night Ranger, but that's how many stories have you heard about musicians dealing with the same problems? Oh, I mean, it's, it's, it's 
it's it's a a, a years old story. I mean, from the mm-hmm. beginning of musical time, you know, record companies or, or the the management have always screwed over the artist. You know, and when artists get control of, them, uh, of themselves and they, they, they finally rein things in, you see a completely different artist. The, the, the tough part about something like like um, Night Ranger, and they were on MCA Records, and I believe MCA didn't know what to do with them. And they had this band that essentially was selling a bunch of records, but they didn't know what they wanted to to which direction they wanted the band to go in because they didn't mm. have that kind of they, – they weren't that kind of label. And so that's those are the kinds of things you you have a label that is a major label but don't know what to do with you and it's a lot different than a, a label who's not behind you and and they don't support you so it's it's really you know you have a label who didn't know what to do with a band like Night Ranger you know as opposed to a a, a label that doesn't want you and they don't believe in you and those 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 destroy bands even worse you know, no, for sure, and it and it's a shame because I think you know if you have a, a label like MCA that has a bunch of money, if they would have just put money into it, say you know what, let's go ahead and just do everything we can and and bombard this world with, you know, with with Night Ranger. I think Night Ranger would have been a lot bigger, but you know, you got a label that doesn't know what to do with a band. They're not putting in millions of dollars to get it, you know, to get them exposure, and so they kind of kind of wallow in it they don't really they they got big strictly on the on the music it wasn't about you know they 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 missed out on touring with major bands and that's part of the problem too mca didn't put them on good bills so that you know that's what hurts oh absolutely um now on the other hand so we have the next band which is rat um that's a band i can i can honestly say when you think of glam, Rad is one of the first you think of. Um, they they came out with their first EP in 1983, but it was out of the cellar in 1984 that really you know gave them it blew them up. Um, out of the cellar had uh, round and round, which I think probably everybody's heard that song, even if they just heard commercials. Yeah, Geico uh, commercial. There, there was a recent Geico commercial that had that song on it. Um, but they were they were one of the bands that really, like, they indulged in the glam scene. Like, they, they weren't necessarily, like, when I think of Motley Crue, I think of innovators, you know, people that, uh, like, are a band that, that was trying to, n- you know, niche out their own uh, or, or, you know, dig out their own niche is what I'm trying to say. Like they were trying to be the, you know, Motley Crue. They, they would, weren't. They, they, yeah, weren't they, they wanted to be the trendsetters. Yeah, they didn't want to be just towing the line. I think of Rat as kind of towing the line, uh, and I'm not. I don't say that criticizing, but they they were they were you know there for the good time. Oh, and for sure, they've even said that before. I've heard I've heard that statement. You know, like. We're here, you know, just to, to you know, be rock stars, and that's that's what they were trying to accomplish, and and so out of the cellar was one of those those breakout hits. Um, I don't think they ever quite hit the same level after that, um, but they definitely you know set their place in glam history. Definitely never hit the same level of of. Uh 
I don't want to use the word stardom because they basically maintained themselves, but they never mm-hmm. had the same as big of a hit as Round and Round. The next album, yeah. Invasion of Your Privacy, had had two good songs that were singles and video hits on MTV, but they didn't hit, they didn't achieve the same level of of success as Round and Round. Um, they actually had their, their third uh, album, I think, it was called Dancing Undercover. That one was actually to me better than Invasion of Your Privacy, and actually had some really good songs. Body Talk is one of my favorite Rat songs. I loved that song. Um, but by that time, you know their their musical style was a little more edgier, a little harder on that album. Uh, but they they were kind of losing their grip so you know so to speak on the crowd because there were so many other bands that were better poison was better cinderella was better you know and and yeah and and more were popping up like you mentioned poisoned wasn't there in the original group of guys but they popped up they you know they were there there was more coming out of the woodwork that had a lot of talent and were taking the stage with new songs that were better and yeah it just it, it wasn't continuing for them to the same level. No, you know, and there's a million different reasons why. You know, internal band politics play a huge part in how a band can continue to move forward. You know, and I don't know what their politics were. I don't know what their band dynamics were. But you could tell that they were not going in the right direction. And it's unfortunate because they were, they had some talented players. Obviously, Warren D. Martini is an excellent guitar player. You know, Robin Crosby is an excellent, was an excellent guitar player. You know, God rest his soul. You know, he had his demons that he had to fight with and eventually succumb to them. You know, and you know, Juan Crozier went from Dawkins to Rat and became, you know, their main staple bass player. I mean, the band for what it's worth is technically still around today, but they've had all sorts of issues, you know, and, you know, Bobby Blotzer is another one of these guys where it, it, you know, he made a name for himself for being, you know, a, a party animal. And it's, you know, they, they, they had their own things. I guess you could say were, were, were self-destructive, you know? And so those things played, played a part in not improving with, with, every album but instead going downhill with every album well i mean yeah motley crew had the same issues in a way where they realized with theater of pain that they were they were you know too addicted to drugs and it was taking away from the quality of their music and that's why they actually kind of stepped away from that uh, briefly to focus on the music because that at the end of the day that was what was most important to them in their lives and so I, I think that's one thing that uh, broke a lot of bands where they, they weren't able to compartmentalize and separate that part of their career, of the partying and everything like that. Whereas somebody like Motley Crue was able to separate and realize that if they didn't get back on the right path, they were going to destroy their own career. Exactly. I mean, there's no other way to say it, but you... you you make your own destiny. And mm-hmm. if if someone like Nikki Six can have the self-awareness that that's what is happening, that, that's great. The, the, I think more than anything, you have to have that self-awareness, but you also have to have the guys in your corner that mm-hmm. help you with that, and, and that's management. 
and you have to have the right managers to get to, to the right managers and the right people in place, the right musicians. I mean, we'll talk about poison more later, but, um, we all know what happened with, uh, CC DeVille and his exit from initial exit from the band. And, um, that's one of those things where that, that guy wasn't going to get them where they needed to go. Right. So, exactly. yeah, it's, it's, it happens that way sometimes. And luckily some of these bands have, have figured it out and said, you know, we're all, we're on the same team. We're going to get our shit together and, and figure this out. Whereas others, you know, politics take place and we don't, we have a lineup that's consisting of one guy and he's the drummer. So <laughs> Stephen Riley's LA guns. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. So for the, for the next one, we're going to talk about quiet riot. We mentioned them a little bit earlier. Uh, to me, quiet riots, one of those that doesn't fit the mold per se. Um, but their music is, is definitely glam. Um, so they had some of the look, they incorporated that in, uh, metal health was the first number one, uh, uh, metal album ever. So 1983 was a big year for metal. This is when things are starting to really take off. Um, so they, they had originally had a run in 1973 to 1980, uh, where Randy Rhodes was in the band. It, Kevin DeBro is the only member that carried over from that time period. And it, it did, that is kind of neither here nor there because they never really took off. They were, they were part of the LA scene, uh, and then they went to Japan where they were much more successful, but never enough to, to stay consistent. And then, uh, the band just kind of fell apart. Um, but 1982 changed all that. And then metal health just blew up. Yeah. And, and by, by saying 1982 changed it, the, the big thing I think that, that really, I don't want to say worked in their favor. That's not really a good phrase to use in this particular example. One thing that kind of pushed them in the, in the right direction was the death of Randy Rhodes. Um, it, it brought Kevin Dubrow and Rudy Sarzo back together as well as, you know, Frankie Benelli. I, I can understand what you mean by that. You yeah. Know, it, it, it's it hard to change and affect things. Yeah. Right. You know, his death made those guys, come together and essentially they wrote that song uh thunderbird for randy and essentially recorded an album around that and said hey let's let's do this and and rudy at the time was part of ozzy's band and at that point he's just like you know what i'm gonna do this very similar to how brad gillis left ozzy's band essentially was at the same time you know, Brad shows yeah. Rudy, hey, look, check out my demo of my band. And Rudy's like, yeah, you know what? I got this going on with with, uh, with, with Kevin, you know? So- yeah, we, we actually discussed this in one of our very first episodes in detail uh, about uh, Ozzy. Right. So that's exactly where Quiet Riot reformed. And th- I guess you, you say they did it for Randy. You know, because Slick, Slick Black Cadillac was an older Quiet Riot song that they rehashed and they brought it to the forefront. Yeah. You know, very good song. And then it was the record, if I'm not mistaken, it was a record company's idea for them to re-record uh, Come On, Feel the Noise. I don't think they wanted to do that song. I mean, I listen... But, it's, but it, thank goodness they did for uh, their, their sake. Exactly, yeah. because they would, have, they, they would not be the band they are right now. 
And what's amazing, again, you know, we've we've kind of touched upon it before. Their version is is basically taking the original Slade version and just tweaking it and making it that much better. Because Kevin sounds exactly the same as as the singer for Slade. You know, in the band itself, it, it was like they just modernized the song and it, it, people rediscovered it. it like, I guarantee you there are people out there that have heard the Slade version that didn't know they were listening to Slade and thought it was quite right. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the vocals are near identical. It's just, it's insane to think about. But Quiet Riot, <sighs> I guess Quiet Riot's own demise was their singer, Kevin Dubrow. He was what, you know, where the ebbs and flows of a band, you know, their life went with i mean it was his band and he got thrown out of it five years later you know you think about that they they threw him out of his own band and then he eventually returned it's 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 hard to think about you know when you, th- you say oh yeah i started this band get out you know and he gets out. i mean especially as a lead singer you know it's not it doesn't happen very often you know but and it, and it was it wasn't successful. The album was kind of lame. It ended up being called Quiet Riot or QR, if you want to look at it. But it had one good song. I mean, Paul, Paul Shortino, who took over for Kevin Dubrow, very good singer. He was in his own right an early glam metal band, or in an in an early glam metal band called Rough Cut. You know, so he was a a, a veteran of the LA scene as well, and that's when they picked him up because they had thrown Kevin out. So quite right. It has a very weird, illustrious history. If you want to look at it that way, yeah. I mean, it, it, it they have a, a interesting history that maybe we should touch on more later, um, because even now they they're continuing on with no original members, um, and and none from the classic lineup. Uh, but there's there's something about their their history that's that's brought them to this point and they want to continue on for Frankie Benali and he would have wanted them to continue from from all you know accounts so um they are continuing on and it's a really interesting history so I've heard that and I I really want to see how that happens once everything opens up again and and touring starts to happen because Mm -hmm. like you said no original members no classic members What's the point? That that to me is a cover band. You Basically. Know? I mean Chuck Chuck Wright is gonna be the bass player. Okay, so he played on um he played on the the third album for Quiet Riot, which is QR three. And you know, when when Rudy left, he Chuck Wright took over and, and then Chuck Wright left and Rudy came back and then you know, Rudy left and Chuck Wright came back. So it's been, you know, crazy amount of in and outs for Chuck. Mm-hmm. He was a close friend of Kevin's, and he was a close friend of of Frankie's. So, you know, for him to say, "I, I want to continue with, with Quiet Riot," I mean, I get it. It, it. He's been in that band for so long, but at the same time, you have nobody from the classic era, no yep. one. And I mean, even if they got Carlos Cavasso back, who cares? You know, you you don't have Frankie, you don't have Kevin. I mean, even if they had Rudy, Rudy would be the only one, but Rudy's not going to be the guy, you know, leading the charge to say, hey, Quiet Riot's back. That's that's not Rudy's style. Yeah, Rudy's S- kind of a joiner. 
exactly. Uh, it's, not, it's not a criticism. No, it's he, just how some people are. I mean, he's a professional yeah. bass player. That's what he is. And he, yeah. and, he, when and he just likes to play bass. Exactly. Yeah. And lick it, too, from time to time. <laughs> but. All right. So Quiet okay. Riot. So Quiet Riot is, is a weird anomaly of a band. But, you know, we'll talk. We'll touch. Definitely touch more upon, uh, upon them at another time. Yeah, for sure. Um, so the next one is always kind of an anomaly. Um, how do I best describe Striper? Um, Yellow and Black Attack releases in 1984, so next year. Um, they're a Christian metal band, so a little different approach. Not quite the excesses that all the others, so they're a little bit different. And uh, but they but they still have the sound. They still have the look. They're wearing the spandex. They're they're playing metal. And a lot of a lot of guys we know today, a lot of musicians love Striper. So um, you know they may not be the same as a lot of these bands that were mostly focused on you know what they could get out of of metal and you know being rock stars. Um, there was more to it for them. Striper. Is is a definitely a unique band. Um, mm-hmm. They paved their own way for sure. Um, I I heard about them after you know when Soldiers on the Command, which was the full the first full length album that they put out, um, was on Enigma Records, which is the same label that I believe Lizzie Borden eventually ended up on, or something like that. Or I don't I don't know because I know they Lizzie Borden was on Metal Blade, but Enigma was was one of these labels that was trying to pick out pick up a lot of these LA bands and, and sign them and try and get them out there. Um they released Yellow and Black Attack. I think the first thing that they put out was Reason for the Season, which was a Christmas song, you know, with the B side Winter Wonderland. We talked about that just a few weeks ago. Uh, you and I had talked about it. They Yellow and Black Attack they have some good songs on it and it and it gives them the ability to go and do a full length album. And their concerts were, you know, where Wasp would throw out red meat and steaks, you know, making it look like they chewed up an animal on stage. You know, Striper's throwing out Bibles. <laughs> um <laughs> it's definitely a different approach. Um I I like them. I they they're four extremely talented musicians um, Oz Fox is a great guitar player, but I think Michael Sweet's a better guitar player. Um, he's underrated. Not a lot of people realize that almost every single one of their solo is harmonized on the guitar. So, so they're both playing solos, Oz and Michael. Um, Robert Sweet, an incredible drummer, doing double bass way, way early on before a lot of people were doing it. So um, they, you know... Tim Gaines' bass player, I mean, nothing, I don't want to take away from Tim Gaines' contributions to the band, but there was nothing that stood out about Tim to, to sit there and say he was this incredible musician, you know. Uh, but, you know, they all had their parts to play in the, in the band. Michael, oh, yeah. to this day, is is still releasing Striper album after Striper album. It's, it's Striper, it's a Michael solo, it's it's Michael doing something with George Lynch, Michael doing something with some other artist. I mean, he's constantly putting something out. Back in the day, they put out Striper all the time. 
it, it's it's hard to say. You know, they they were part of that. They were definitely glam. I mean, they put the hair up, they had the makeup on, you know, the eyeliner, and they sang love songs. Honestly, you know, and uh, I forgot the other big hit that they had. And they sang those songs. I mean, they it was that was the formula. You rock hard, but you got to throw one ballad in there, to, you know, to get all the chicks to 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 line up and buy the records and, and the tickets to the concerts. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that definitely became more prevalent, and that's something that I I definitely would touch on in a bit. Um, but yeah, they, I I mean, I, they definitely fit the the mold of what glam was. Uh, they just took a little bit different approach because of their their religion. I mean, I don't think that's a that's a factor that that can be taken into account and say, oh, they're not glam or whatever, um, because yeah, everything else was there. All the all the templates that you said, like you know the 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 guitar player, the the uh, ballads, you know the all that stuff th- that was there. So they are definitely an influence of the early stages of glam. Absolutely, I mean you can't take you know good looking singer, shredding guitar players, you know, and and they had a look, they had the hair, so they you know <laughs> <laughs> it was there. Yep, you know you can't take anything away from them. They're you know they had they had good songs. And, and, you know, Chris Jericho is a huge Striper fan. You know, there are a lot of bands that will not sit there and say that they were, you know, Striper fans back in the day, but they admit to it now, you know. And they had a rough a rough time at some cases because they were they were attacked by by both the religion that they believed in and by the, the you know, for, for lack of a better term, the non-believers, you know. Yeah, they got they got it from both ends, and yet they stayed strong and and committed to what they did. See, so you know, had had they come out, you know, in in the I guess you say late nineties or two thousands when you know death metal bands or, or the metalcore bands that are Christian, because a huge huge part of the metalcore scene is that there are a lot of Christian bands. And they their music was available at you know Christian churches or you know the ones that had you know uh, those stores that you could buy stuff at. Like I know I, I for a while I went to you know uh, what was it called that Fellowship of the Woodlands before they changed their name to Woodlands Church. They had a store that you could buy goods internationally, and they had a little corner that they sold CDs. And man, did they have a section that had a lot of metalcore bands i mean right next to amy grant there's you know uh, uh you know as i lay dying or um what's the other one that's real big um i can't remember but you know those bands like that were in the record store because they were labeled christian bands because of their beliefs but eventually those bands try to push away and say look we don't want to be labeled a christian band we're a metal band mm-hmm. you know striper on the other hand we're a metal band. We're a Christian band. They wanted to be part of both scenes, and neither one of the scenes wanted them. And so they 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 kind of had to forge their own way, and they did, and they gained popularity on their own efforts because yeah. you know the record companies believed in them because they were selling tickets, and they were selling albums. So the record company pushed it, and when they came out with songs like "Honestly," and they put it on MTV, and they, you know every girl at five o'clock in the afternoon was dialing MTV to get that song played. You know, it 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 was big for them. You know, so they definitely were were a huge player in that in that scene. Oh, for sure. And the next one that we're going to talk about, um, the, it's it's funny to even 
associate them with glam. Um, and I, we had a discussion about this earlier today. Uh, but Def Leppard uh, released uh, Pyromania in 1983. Now, you tend to feel that Hysteria is more of the glam, uh, the glam album. Um, I disagree. I think I think Pyromania fits more of the of the the format of what glam is. Um, but either way, the, you know they transition more to pop metal outside of glam per se, and their their focus was less on you know looking like the image of glam, and they went into a different direction. So they're they they only just barely dipped their toes in. But I still think that. Def Leppard was was definitely influential in the early glam days. You know, they were a new wave of British heavy metal band when they started, but mm-hmm. they always they their influences were different than the rest of the new wave of British heavy metal bands. You know, whereas a band like Iron Maiden, their influences were more progressive hard rock bands. Um Def Leppard's influences were T-Rex. I mean, that's their biggest influence, T-Rex and mm-hmm. Bowie. So they were influenced by the glam scene. And it's amazing that they weren't, you know, a, a, another version of Twisted Sister, you know, because that's how much influence Bowie and T-Rex had on them, you know. But they they were part of the, the, the new album scene and – they moved away from that, you know. When they came out with "On Through the Night," that was definitely a new wave of British heavy metal. But their next album, uh, "High and Dry," that was essentially a, you know, almost like a, a New York, or excuse me, more like an LA glam metal scene type of album. And then you're, you're right, Pyromania continued in that vein, and they got more and more. But to me, it culminated with hysteria because in hysteria they had the hair they had the look they had the the outfits the leather and all that stuff whereas mm-hmm. with pyromania you know they're out there you know in jeans and they're out there with a with a you know you got the drummer who's got shorts on that basically is union jack and that's all he wore you know and, the, and they were wearing loose shirts and they were <clears throat> they were more for to me, the the period for high and dry and, and pyromania was more of a straightforward metal band, or trying to be, and you know, then when they hit hysteria, hysteria they had, um, you know, they had love bites and and pour some sugar on me. So they had the the rock song, and then they had the ballad. So they and then they had the hair. So to me, yeah. that's that's why I always lump hysteria being the ultimate, you know, for them the ultimate glam, even though they weren't, you know, putting on makeup, but it, they were glamming it up. And I could see your point where, you know, they, they were, it was more popish, but to me, I see, I lump pop and glam together. And that's why that was the culmination. And, you know, adrenalized kind of continued that trend, you know, I gotcha. I mean, it, it's fair enough. Like, uh, you know, you can dissect metal as much as you want into all these different categories and and we like to we like to talk about it i mean that's why their their category categories exist is because people like to have these discussions um you know i think that's the biggest factor for me is that is hysteria if you listen to it it sounds much more poppy than what came before it and that's that 
that's the factor. So it's easy to say, you know, it could be one or the other or both, you know, that really define them as part of the pop scene. Um, but, you know, 1983 is is kind of where we're, we are in this whole thing. So it's it's neither here nor there. They're yeah. they're part of the early influencers, and uh, th- I mean that leads us to the last one, which is huge for uh, for glam metal and for metal in general, uh, which was Bon Jovi. Um, they released Bon Jovi in 1984, uh, another band out of New Jersey, and uh, they're kind of influential in in the later portion of uh where we're going to be talking about because of what they did with slippery with wet or slippery wind wet so we'll talk more about them during the second episode of this um but your thoughts on bon jovi i was a big bon jovi fan in the in the middle 80s um especially when um uh slippery when wet came out but i you know obviously you know the first album runaway was a big hit for them so I I love that song. That was a really cool song. Um, I wasn't too big on the, on their next album, uh, the second one. It just it 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 didn't do anything for me. I mean, they had uh, one hit off of it, and it wasn't as big as Runaway. But obviously, when Slippery When Wet hit, I mean, they they wanted to make it. They were pulling out all the stops. I mean, they brought in Desmond Child, and Desmond just put them over the top. Yeah, they definitely had a sophomore slump. Uh, sophomore slump with uh, Fahrenheit. I don't even remember. Oh, it was something number seventy eight hundred degrees. F- yeah, yeah, seventy. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's weak. But but Bon Jovi was a great album. Uh, Runaway, she don't know me. Burning love or burning for love, right? Um, I mean, those are all good songs. I like Roulette. I mean, then you get to Slippery Wind Wet, and that's I mean, that's a massive album. No, it's. I mean, I mean, it was. It was. You give love a bad name. Living on a prayer. Wanted dead or alive. Never say goodbye. I mean, th- now you're setting the template for the, uh, the ballads. Oh yeah, I mean, so where Motley Crue is the one that started the ballad phase with "Home Sweet Home." Mm-hmm. Bon Jovi in '86, "Slippery When Wet" comes out, and they have. Wanted dead or alive, and on top of and never say goodbye, and then never say goodbye. I mean, never say goodbye was my my prom song in '87. Um, those two songs were huge, you know. And the how I mean, the whole album was was great. When you think about it, 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 I mean, you give love a bad name, like you said, living on a prayer, wanted dead or alive, uh, never never say goodbye. I die for you. Wild in the streets was a cool way to end the album. I mean, it's a great album. Desmond Child has his name all over this thing for for all the different singles that he helped write with them, and I mean it's it's night and day from seventy eight hundred degrees Fahrenheit to Slippery When Wet, and they just exploded. I mean that they they were huge, and and like I said, so Never Say Goodbye ballad, but Wanted Dead or Alive, they came out with an acoustic version, which is essentially what started the the. It's what started the acoustic trend that eventually Tesla put over the top with the five-man acoustical jam. You know, it, the acoustic version of Wanted Dead or Alive, to me, I like better than than the the original. But it's neither here nor there in that regards. That Bon Jovi was the, was the one who put ballads over the top. 
you know. Oh, yeah, oh, for sure. I mean, it really it it helped change the credibility of metal, and that's what that's what we've been seeing from 1981 to this point, 1986, which is kind of where we're cutting off the line. Uh, is is that's taking it from its infancy to to like the stage of credibility and with slippery when wet came out that was that was a huge moment we had a number one uh hit with metal health with quiet riot and then now metal has has had a uh, an album that was on for what eight weeks on the top two or the billboard 200 something like so that. yeah i mean it, it's this is huge um so and it's also incorporating more of the pop into it. So it's transitioning from the early stages where Too Fast for Love was very edgy and, and hard, um, where we're getting more into the pop aspect, which would lead into bands like Poison coming out and some of the following. Um, so one thing that I, I noted when doing research for this as well was a lot of these groups, these bands, hit a a either... Like change, like like they had to change a bit of what they were doing towards the late '80s, or they were reaching a cycle where, you know, the band was falling apart, having issues. Um, you had Kicks um, would would uh, break up, you know, sometime in the mid '90s uh, during the the change with uh, grunge music. Um, you had Dokken, uh break up before the '90s. Uh, in 1989 so you had uh, motley crew go through their changes uh, in the early 90s with uh, vince neal leaving the band um, twisted sister would break up in 1988 uh, night ranger I'm, I'm not too sure but they had they had to make some changes in the early 90s as well uh, rat would break up in 1992 um, you had quiet riot break up in in 1989 Striper break up in 1993. Uh, Def Leppard really changed their direction, so they persisted on and had their own popularity. And they were really more based in England, so that a different uh, situation. But then you had Bon Jovi uh, really change things when so they had New Jersey, but then their big hit was 1992 with Keep the Faith. Uh, complete change in direction from from glam to just a hard rock band. So you see, right around this time, all these uh, initial bands, the the pioneers, all had huge changes in their careers. Um, a lot of them would reform. Uh, uh, I mentioned Striper, Quiet Riot, um, Rat, uh, Twisted Sister, and Dawkin would all reform. And Motley Crue would have eventually rejoin with Vince Neil. So um, there's there's a, b- a big change that came, and it wasn't just glam. There was something more happening, and and society was changing. And I think these guys were always kind of at the forefront. Um, not necessarily all of them, but like guys like Motley Crue, um, you know, uh, Bon Jovi had had their their hand on the pulse, and they could see that things were changing, and they had to to make some pretty big difference or changes to be able to subsist. You know, with all these bands the you know, they, they all, you know, started around a similar time. They all um, imploded around a similar time. And it kind of, it kind of makes you wonder really what happened. 
you know, and again, I go back to, to, you have to have the right people around you, Mm -hmm. right? You know, from the beginning, well, not from the beginning, but to somewhat, you look at a band like Metallica, who they're a thrash band that eventually evolved into a heavy metal band that eventually evolved into a, a alternative metal band and eventually came back to being a metal band. Right. All, mm-hmm. all throughout their career, you know, the first, the first manager they had was Johnny Z, but you know, Lars Ulrich identified immediately. He's like, look, if we're ever going to get past a certain point, this guy can't be our manager. We need better management. You know, if we ever want to get past a certain point, we need a better record label. So we need to get signed to a major, you know, but all in, throughout everything, they had good people around them. And I don't know if it had to do with Lars being able to identify good people, but they, you know, once they signed with Q Prime, they've never left. They've been with Peter Mensch and, and uh, I can't remember who the other guy's name is this entire time, you know, and Peter Mensch. If, if we're talking about someone who's good, used to manage ACDC when he was with Lieber and Krebs, you know, uh, so he was he was their manager during their biggest time. So that, that tells you something how good you know Peter Mensch is. Bands- I think I I think there's some validity to that, and then there's also just some people have a business mind and they they recognize you know, what it takes to be successful. I mean, obviously guys like Gene Simmons and Lars has that that mindset. They're, I mean, I think Bruce Dickinson is very keenly aware of what it takes to be successful. Well, Steve um, Harris and Rod Smallwood. I mean, they, they run Iron Maiden. Yeah. You know, um, but, but I mean, even, oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, Nikki Six, for that matter, has, Nikki Six, he that's has what I was that, say, actually. right, he has that ability. The problem with Nikki was, he had heroin that was throwing him sideways half the time. Oh, absolutely. Um, but even now, I mean, he has a pretty keen business awareness and recognizes what is going to make the band successful even today when they're not really active. Right. I mean, these they own their own tapes. So you think about mm-hmm. it, that, that's, that, that is enormous. Not many bands in the metal genre own their own music. Metallica is the other one that you know, come to mind. I don't know any other band. Judas Priest does, other than their first couple albums. I don't know if they if they literally own their music or if they just have a really good working relationship with Sony Music. Gotcha. Okay. Because I know, like, like they're they're on Sony or CBS or whatever you want to call it, Columbia. Whereas, Motley, you know, Motley Crue's on their own Motley Records. Metallica, gotcha, Metallica's gotcha. got their own. You know, they own one hundred percent of their music. You know, and and they have blackened label now. But you know, but you you have bands like Priest and, that have good working relationships with their with their record companies. Iron Maiden has got a good working relationship with whichever record company they're with. They've never been screwed on that end of the deal. But you know, record companies. You know, when when you have not so savvy a manager and then you have not so good a record company shit go sideways real easy. So with all these bands imploding at the same time, I mean, obviously it had a lot to do with the, the changing of the world and the styles that, that was going out there. But there's obviously always more to it in the background. 
you know, what led to all these different things. And all these bands just, you know, they had a different story. You know, Quiet Riot with their singer, you know, Rat with their with their drugs and the guitar player going downhill, you know, Motley Crue wanting a you know, drugs involved and, and wanting a new singer, you know. You know, for, for what it's worth, Def Leppard never wavered. They just took forever in between albums because they wanted perfection. Bon Jovi never wavered. They, you know, when when Alex John Such got, you know, to be intolerable, they moved on and they got another bass player. But they kept they kept going, you know, and they adapted dramatically to the point where they're almost like a country band now. You know, they're like a yeah, they're like a country, you, country rock band. Yeah, they they definitely recognized you know the the changing times where I think a lot of the bands n- didn't necessarily recognize it and they fell by the wayside for it and. Um, you can also see around the same time, a lot of them reformed, like the early 2000s, there was a resurgence in a lot of the the interest in these bands and you see the, them reforming, um, you know, playing a couple shows here or there and then, and then deciding, oh, this is the right time to regroup and reform. Um, so like Twisted Sister, Quiet Riot, uh, Striper. All around 2000 to 2003, um, Kicks even reformed around that time. Uh, Dawkins was before that, but there was you know changes within their lineup, etc. Um, but the, the, you can see there, there like some of them. There's there's this trend that's going on, and they ride the trend. Uh, Rat would reform in the same way. Um, so you you see that, but but there is. The, the definite trendsetters that that are you know in in place and they they didn't necessarily stay with the glam scene uh, they may have changed things up but they they also recognize their history um, and then some of them we will see in our in our second episode we'll see names come back around and how they how they you know became part of the second wave even if they were part of the first wave or or some of them were even influences from before so um, that kind of, I think, wraps up where we're at with the the initial, like the pioneers. Um, did you have any more thoughts to talk about with this? No, I mean, we definitely have a lot to say about the second wave because, you know, there are a lot of bands that we didn't mention tonight that are definitely, you know, we mentioned a couple of them as far as the influencers, but the influencers became part of the, the scene themselves, you know, exactly. much like Black Sabbath eventually became a metal band, um, you know, bands like uh, that we're going to talk about next next time is going to be, you know, bands like Kiss and Aerosmith and 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 bands like that, that, that reinvented themselves to some degree to, to keep themselves relevant. And they became part or, of the scene. Or maybe sometimes it was just a natural progression, which is in the case of some of the bands, I feel like that's you know what it was but others specifically went out of their way to change to to be able to subsist and you know there's nothing wrong with that you know i mean for for what it's worth aerosmith had two different careers there's the you know the career in the 70s and then there's the career in the 80s and and today you know you know now they obviously are an amalgamation of both but in the, in the 70s they were a distinctly different band than they were in the in the 80s Yep. And in, in, in into the nineties. And they they were one of the people that were one of the bands that were able to survive and get through the grunge movement 
and still and still be able to be successful. But they they themselves had to do it a certain way. You know, they couldn't just rely on straight up rock. They had to kind of keep their their balance with the, the ballads and, and, and keeping the popularity on the charts. And eventually they were able to sustain themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, but that's that's the conversation for next time. Um what we have right now, you know, this this we we've established where this music came from. We've established, you know, the scenes and the in the the people who became the big bands in in the scene. The LA scene was huge for this. Um but there are so many more bands that we're going to talk about next time and 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 see how this scene just literally explodes. And and you know, thank you MTV. Thank you radio in in this regards but they you know it pop metal glam metal you know whatever you want to call it hair metal even though that didn't exist back then they became mainstream and you know for good or bad that was part of what made them successful but it was also part of what made them uh decline so we'll talk about that next time all right so that wraps up part one of the life and death of glam metal uh, next next episode, we'll be coming back with part two. Uh, but right now, we're going to go to the big four. And like we said, since we did last week, uh, where we talked about our, our last episode, where we talked about Motley Crue, we're going to go into Motley Crue's big four. And I think that's more than fitting since they're the first of the glam albums. Absolutely. They, they are definitely uh, the big influence on the L.A. scene. I mentioned if you if you listen to the last episode uh, that came out on Christmas, um, Motley Crue. I, I I got into Motley Crue uh, with the Shout at the Devil album, and I've been a fan of theirs the entire time. But there's there's just some things that just you know for me they've always been mind boggling, and you know sometimes I just want to bang my head against the wall because they they drive me crazy. But <laughs> what I like about my Big Four today is that it spans four different albums. You know, and that's pretty cool. So, um, my number four, big four Motley Crue song, is "Louder Than Hell" off the Theater of Pain album. I love that song. I mean, it's just it's a cool song. It's a slow beat, but it's it's like if it wasn't for the really shitty production, it would be a really heavy song. <laughs> but the production on the album is is glam. <laughs> if you want that that to me is is Motley Crue's big glam album if you think about it. Uh, that's when they had all the makeup on and they that's one where they they looked most like chicks um more than anything. And I guess that was the same year 85 Poison was starting to build around that time so we'll talk more next week about it. Number 3 Livewire off of Too Fast for Love. Awesome song one of the early song Motley Crue songs that I caught on MTV. They didn't play it very much because of the flames on, on Nikki's legs and shit, but it was a, it was a really cool song. Number two, as I mentioned, uh, in the last episode is this song is really got, a, it's got a lot going on for it. 10 seconds to love is, is a really cool, cool Motley Crue song. And that's my favorite song off of shout at the devil. Um, but number one, as soon as you hear the chords, it is an amazing song. Kickstart my heart. It's 
nothing I can say about that song is bad. I love that song. I crank it to 12. I go past 11 when I hear that song. <laughs> I crank it so high that, I mean, me and the neighbors get to hear that song every time I hear it. So I love that song. <laughs> <laughs> well, All right. So pretty good list. I say pretty good. You got two of my my same ones crossed over. Um, but I think mine's a little better. Oh, oh okay then. <laughs> um, so for my number four, and I also had al- uh, ones off of four different albums, but different albums. Um, I had Girls, Girls, Girls. Uh, something about that song, I just, I've always really liked it. I think it fits exactly what its subject matter is like if if you think of like strip clubs and <laughs> and that scene like that song is so perfect for that idea mm. um, not that i'm the guy that goes to strip clubs and all that but at the same time like it, when you when you write a song and it's about a certain subject and it fits the the vibe that much and it's just a kick-ass song i mean come on so for number three, I've got uh, Too Young to Fall in Love. Um, that's that's a riff that just always comes up in my head. I, I kind of hum it to myself like all the time. And it's just been one that, that uh, as far as Motley Crue goes, it just it's, it's always stuck with me. Um, number two, I've got Kickstart My Heart, your number one. It's, uh, it, man, it is such a kick-ass song. And the only part that I I could do without, but I still like it, is the breakdown um, where he's, you know, talking about, uh, you know, we started as a, you know, we started just for a laugh and we're still kicking ass. It's fine. It's just, it's so cheesy to me, but, <laughs> but at the same time, it's, it's still good. Like I'm not, I'm not taking anything away from it. And that's the only reason I have it as my number two. See, I, I like that of, part because- when you listen to it really loud, that has a really good low bass hum that Nikki hits, mm-hmm. and he hit he hits that low note, and it just rattles the car. <laughs> I love that. Oh, nice. Um, so my number one though is is Livewire. Um, I think it just represents that rawness of the initial uh, stages of 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 a band you know, in their infancy and trying to break out. And there's, there's just, there's so much emotion and, and anger and, and excitement. Like there's just everything there. And Livewire is just a good song to back that up. It's not just, it's not just the emotions and everything behind it, but it's, it's just a good song. And, uh, it's gotta be my number one. I mean, it's, it, when I think of Motley Crue, that's the song I think of. I hear you. I can see why you think your, your list is better than mine. you got more popular songs because i hit two deep tracks so i get it i understand we'll have to duke it out next time (laughs) but yeah great list i like it i like it a lot so that brings it close to this episode uh to this part one of the glam metal the life and death of glam metal um we already talked about a little bit about what we're going to talk about next week but kind of give them a couple more details chris and let them know what we're talking about so next week we're going to take it to the second half of the 80s, uh, past 86, uh, leading into the early 90s. Uh, the formation of bands like Poison, uh, guys that would be like the, the standard bearers of the next wave of, uh, of glam metal. And then leading into kind of the, the dissolution of, 
of the popularity and the MTV era kind of changing into, you know, the Beavis and Butthead and, and those kind of things that really pulled away from the, the initial uh, excitement that, that, that really drew people into glam. And even things like uh, in, in 1988, there was the decline of Western civilization part two, the metal years. And I think it even drew further away from the, the uh, scene because there was a lot of view into the excesses of metal and it really turned people off and there was a change in society happening. So we're going to explore that with part two, the death of glam metal. So we'll see you then. And remember, always turn it up to 11. See ya.